0: Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Philippians Part 5, you can open your Bibles to Chapter 3. And since it's been a week or so, a couple weeks, Philippians, again, is Paul writing a letter to encourage the Christians in Philippi church that he founded, to stay the course. Things have, uh, they have seen some persecution and what they're really seeing and hearing about is Paul's persecution. In fact, he's writing this letter from prison. So he's writing this letter from his perspective. I say again, this is inspired by the Holy Spirit. So this is what God is speaking to us. But it's also what Paul is speaking to the Christians in Philippi to encourage them to stay the course, no matter what they hear about him, no matter what happens to them. And uh, urging them that no matter what, just to continue to be like Jesus. We talked a couple weeks ago about Epaphroditus and his dedication to Paul and the gospel and what that cost him. And then mostly, uh, last week, uh, two weeks ago, about Paul's warning about the Judaizers and their legalism, this pervasive idea, again, that the Jews had, Jewish believers, this, the, had this idea that they were sort of top-tier Christians and that any Gentiles who had any hope of being genuine believers, of being pleasing to God, essentially had to first come to Judaism, become Jewish, and then turn to Christ. And uh, Paul argues against that forcefully, as always. And then uh, he presents his bona fides for the church or for the, to the Philippians, saying that, you know, these, these Judaizers, they're boasting in their Jewishness, and I was more Jewish than any of them. And he lists all of his qualifications, builds it up. It's an impressive CV. And then he turns around and says, it's rubbish. That's what it's worth to me now. It's nothing. It's less than nothing compared to the privilege of knowing Christ and receiving the righteousness that only he can offer, that I can't earn and that they can't earn for all their uh, religiosity and Jewishness. So we pick it up here in chapter 3 and we'll begin... In verse 17, brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame who set their minds on earthly who set their mind on earthly things for our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly await for the savior the lord jesus christ who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself and i wrestled with this passage far longer than any in this series, not because it's a difficult passage, it's not, but because I want to be concise, and this passage could easily be turned into a sermon series by itself. There's a lot I want to say, but I can't say everything. Um, So note, first of all, that there's a similarity between this, his opening statement here, join in following my example. Do you remember when he said to the Corinthians, imitate me as I imitate Christ? And when I shared that, uh, and when we got to Ephesians, where it says, be imitators of God as dear children, I noted that contrast. I've done that a number of times, how when Paul was writing to the church in Corinth, he was writing to an immature group of believers. And so he told them, imitate me. Sort of, and the implication there is they weren't spiritually mature enough to see God clearly enough to imitate him. So Paul, very boldly and confidently says, look, I'm following God. So if you imitate me, I'll be your crutch for a while. You're safe in imitating me. And that's something we should strive for as believers to lead a life. When we're discipling somebody, if we're trying uh, to lead somebody in Christianity, we ought to be able to say, do like I do. And, uh, but to the Ephesians, who were a more mature group, he says, be imitators of God as dear children. Here, he's not really taking either one of those. He's not, when he says, join in following my example, he is not really saying that. He's not saying that because the Philippians are immature. Uh, it's not really about that distinction of all. It's simply, again, it's about staying the course. Uh, he can foresee some trouble, some tribulation that Jesus promised all believers, and he's saying, look, I'm staying the course, and I'm in prison. And we've, we've read other things about the things that Paul endured that I'm sure the Philippians were more or less aware of. Uh, and he also had enormous talent. Paul did. A terrific pedigree. But he stayed faithfully on a course that was determined by the Lord, not based on his background. He is faithfully staying the course that God had mapped out for him, but look where it has landed him, in prison. By a lot of people's estimation, he's not a success. In fact, earlier in this letter, do you remember? He was talking about other ministers who were pointing to Paul as a failure and trying to separate themselves from him and using Paul's imprisonment to elevate their own ministry. And Paul said, you know, they're wrong for doing that. But bottom line is, they're still preaching the gospel, so I don't care. So he's not being held up by other believers as an example of a good, successful Christian life or a successful ministry. But he still boldly tells them to follow his example and to note those who are walking the same path. You know, we've seen, uh, I didn't jot this down. It just kind of occurred to me. There are are times when Paul says, note those among you who cause strife, who cause division, mark them. And there are some people who love taking a verse like that and saying, that's my ministry. To point out uh, those who are causing strife and then by extension, they just, they spend their whole, all of their energy and all their talent attacking and tearing down somebody else's ministry or everybody else's ministry. I have... uh, I've shared some of this with you before, and I haven't, uh, I'm not going to encourage you to find it. But there's more than one out there like this. I remember looking up uh, a particular ministry and reading something critical. And then I see, well, there's a homepage here. So I go back to this guy's homepage. I couldn't think of a minister that wasn't on this guy's list. He was warning the world against practically everybody. That's not a ministry, okay? He's, but he's saying here, note those. Follow my example and note those who are living like that. That's kind of, a, kind of another way of saying give honor where honor is due. Note them, mark them, and encourage others to be like them. And you be like them. Uh, but the sad part here, and the important part, is what follows. When he talks about enemies of the cross of Christ, that those who are not walking like that. Now, this certainly includes the Judaizers that we've already talked about. How are they enemies on the cross of Christ? Well, they were all about the ritual, the law, the practices, the forms. And completely forgetting the complete work that Jesus Christ did at the cross. And the efficacy of that. The cross was enough. The blood was enough. That is where our righteousness comes from. It's where our forgiveness comes from. It's where our salvation comes from. And the Judaizers were so hung up on circumcision that they were forgetting that central message. So when he says enemies of the cross of Christ, he doesn't necessarily mean people who are protesting Christianity. They're not out there protesting Christianity. They're enemies not of Christ, but of Christ's cross, because they're preaching another way to God. You forget about his death and his resurrection, you're off course. And when he says, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly... And whose glory is in their shame. Who set their mind on earthly things. And rather than take these things. Well okay we're going to look at this list. First whose end is destruction. Next whose God is their belly. See them uh, as one whole general category. And look at it as describing people who call themselves Christians. Because I'm positive this is who Paul's talking about. He's not talking about pagans. He's not talking about people who have rejected Christ. He's talking about people who have embraced Christianity. Have maybe said the prayer of salvation. But they have set their mind on earthly things. All right. Again, they're not out there burning down churches. Or... uh, combating Christianity. Their heart's not in the right place. Their mind's not in the right place. I had a, uh, I had a very interesting conversation earlier this week with a Muslim man. And uh, he was, he was uh, very intelligent, very well-spoken, and very kind. But he told me a little bit about his history and his experience with Christianity. And what he struggled with, really, was the fact that there were so many Christians he knew who ignored the Bible, especially the Old Testament, how he just could not reconcile people believing. Now, I have to say this. He had, it became very clear very early on that he had a pretty warped definition of Christianity. So part of his disconnect was the fact that He didn't see people living up to what he saw as Christianity. And he wasn't being mean. Uh, He wasn't being uh, profane or anything. I just kind of had to straighten him out on a couple of those things. For instance, one of the things he said was, I don't know why anybody would follow a religion that tells you if you just sin once, you're going to hell. That you've got to do everything just right. And if you blow it, God just sends you to hell. He says, you know, in in Islam, uh, we are taught that if you are presented with an opportunity to do evil and you resist it, there's a reward for that. And that even if you sin, there's forgiveness and there's mercy. And I'm like, who told you that Christianity sends you to hell for sinning one time? I have never heard anybody present Christianity like that. So I think, to be honest, part of what he was sharing with me was what he has learned as a Muslim about Christianity for a number of years. But he also heard some things as a, as a young man that bothered him about Christianity. Uh, and, and he had a valid point because you know and I know people who claim to be Christians and who might be born again, but they either don't follow the Bible or they just flat don't know the Bible. Does anybody know a believer like that? I'm not going to point fingers, but there's believers like that in this room, probably. A lot fewer percentage-wise than any other church in America, but statistically speaking, there's a the likelihood that there are people in here who would probably fail a Bible literacy test. And we can fix that. The great news is, that's, all, that's something that we don't have to live with, right? So I had to explain to him this. I said, you know, uh, just explain to him what I, said, what I just said to you. There are people who uh, maybe they had a genuine experience coming to Jesus. Maybe they've just, they think they're a Christian because they've been raised in a Christian culture. Uh, But they don't know their Bibles. So you can't take, you can't look at a person who says they're a Christian and then follow them around and decide, well, that's what Christians believe. You kind of got to figure out what the background is. And he's like, yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. And I said, but you have to understand that this world is full of Muslims who are the exact same way. And you can tell he kind of stiffened there. I said, no, 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 listen to me. I don't mean that as an insult. I mean, people who are Muslims because they were raised in an Islamic culture, but they don't know what the Quran says any more than I do. And I told them about my experience in Niger, going with Neil from village to village. Uh, all these, uh, you know, they, Neil and Dunette live in a city or in the outskirts of a city of over a million people. niamey it's a huge city, it's an urban area. But you get two, three miles outside of city limits and boom, it's grass huts and sticks. Very, very primitive. But the biggest building in every little village is the mosque. And the most important man in each village is the imam. All right? This is just their culture. This is a Muslim nation. It's, not, it's a secular nation, okay? That's the nice, It's not a, you know, a caliphate-ruled uh, uh, country or anything like that. But the most important guy in each village is typically uh, the chief Muslim minister. But guess what? he can't read or write. He doesn't have a Quran. And none of these people could give you a working definition of Islam. So why are they Muslims? Because they always just have been, because it's a Muslim culture. And he conceded that point. He says, yeah, that's probably true. I said, well, it's absolutely true. I had a, I didn't share this with him. uh, I had a conversation years ago, and I may have shared this with you. Uh, This was while I was at Canaan Land, had a fascinating conversation with a guy who had been a, uh, Combat, a gunship pilot, uh, helicopter, you know, uh, Apaches, Cobras, whatnot, uh, for the Israeli, uh, Israel Defense Forces. And uh, this was, uh, you know, not long after the first Gulf War. And I don't know if you remember the panic, not the panic, but the concern as we were ramping up to go liberate Kuwait. The concern was not, can we win this? The consensus was, especially with this coalition, uh, that we could, but that the type of enemy we would be fighting, because of the religious background, would be the type of enemy who would go down fighting to the last man. That in order to win this war, we would have to slaughter everybody. Why? Because we heard it again and again and again. We are dealing with a religious system that trains them to believe that the quickest and most assured way of getting into paradise is to die in defense of your faith. So we thought we were facing this army of religious zealots, fanatics, who were just going to throw themselves at us until until we mowed them all down, and therefore it was stunning. Because you turn on the TV and what do you see? You see whole battalions of the Iraqi army, hands up, white flags, surrendering en masse why I think there are two reasons for that one is there was a ton of prayer going up do you remember that there was a religious revival a Christian revival when it came to praying for our troops and praying for our nation I think that had something to do with it this Israeli guy when I, when I told him about that I said how do you account for that I said I've never heard the because uh, this guy was not a Christian uh He said, uh, said, I'll tell you what that is. He goes, you've got a very uh, Western view of Eastern culture. Now, are those Muslim nations? Yeah, they are. He says, but they're Muslim nations like America is a Christian nation. Most Muslims are not religious Muslims. He says, I'm a Jew, but I'm not a religious Jew. I'm a Jew because I live in a Jewish culture. And he says, and that's true of most Jews. You know, we picture Israel, many of us, and Jews as a very religious people who are waiting for their Messiah. Do you know the vast majority of Jews do not expect a Messiah at all? An individual. Now, they might have some idea of a messianic age. But they are not looking for, we talk about how they missed Jesus and they're still looking for their Messiah. They're not looking for a Messiah, not most of them. There's a small percentage of Orthodox Jews that are. Most of them are, a lot of them are secular Jews, just like we are secular, not we, but a lot of Americans are secular Christians. He says, so that really wasn't, in, there's no conflict there. These guys are just trying to survive like everybody else. I'll tell you one more story before we move on, but it's all about the same thing. Falusho. many of you remember uh, Felucio Oyurukum, who was here for a number of years uh, doing his Ph.D. work at the, at the U of I. Fluchel got saved in Nigeria in college. And he tells a great, his testimony is amazing. He tells a story about how active the Christian community is in Nigeria. He said, they're so bold. He says, if you're not saved and you go to college, you'll probably get saved because the Christians on campus are so bold and so active. He says, if a professor is two minutes late showing up for class, a Christian will go up front, take the microphone and start preaching to the class. So he comes to Christ in Nigeria, goes to uh, Russia for graduate school because he wanted to study rocket science, and there was no place for him to do it in Nigeria. So he moves to, uh, he was, was he in Moscow? Uh, I think so. He's over there, studied, has to learn Russian so that he can study rocket science in Russia. And while he's there, he is being pastored by a guy who is word of faith. And he sees this guy living by faith. He says, I saw God provide for this guy again and again. He says, people are standing in line for meat, standing in line for coffee. Their mail gets stuck. He says, this guy always had plenty of everything. And his mail came regularly. He always got his word of faith right there at the same day every month coming in the mail. He says, I watched this. He says, and of course, all the material that I am reading to grow in my faith is coming from where? From the United States of America. So, when he decides to apply to uh, graduate school again, he applies to MIT. You've heard of MIT. <laughs> he gets accepted, and he's excited, not just because of the stature of that school and its reputation, but because he's coming into, coming to America, where all of this Christianity is being poured out of into his part of the world, and he can't wait to come to this Christian nation and soak in the presence of God. And where does he land? Where does he go? Where is MIT? Right there in the buckle of the Bible belt, right? No, he lands over there in the liberal uh, hotbed of liberalism, and he's shocked by what he sees. He looks around, how can this be? How can this be the country? That sent all this great literature and produced all these great missionaries and men and women of God. Because it ain't America that did that. These were Christian Americans, but their citizenship is in heaven. The distinction, again, that Paul is making here is not between those who embrace Christianity on one side and those who oppose it on the other. The distinction is between those whose attention is on Christ, on heaven versus those whose whole life is dedicated to this life. And he's not talking about rank sin, the stuff that we would easily identify as sin. Talking about things like money, popularity, success. We have so many people, and I'm talking people who have made decisions for Christ, but their focus is about being a solid person well-rounded, well-adjusted citizen. Strong emphasis on family. Family first. Nothing better and more admirable than a family man. But there's two things we have to remember. Number one, Paul, right here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, reminds us that our citizenship is in heaven. We need to be much more concerned with living as good citizens and good representatives of heaven than we do of being good citizens and residents of St. Joseph, Illinois, or the United States of America. You can be a patriot, but you can't be a patriot first. Second thing is Jesus himself talked about a sword that would separate family members from one another because of their dedication to Christ. There was a time when he's out there speaking and somebody interrupted him and said, Jesus, your your family's here to see you. Your brothers and your mother are here. And he says, you know who my brothers and my mother are? Do you know who my real family is? Those who hear the word of God and do it. This, by the way, was one of the things that offended this uh, Muslim gentleman I spoke to the other day. He said, do you know there's a story in the Bible that talks about Jesus? Peace be upon him. Every time he said the word, the name Jesus, he would say, peace be upon him. There's a story in the Bible that tells how Jesus, he was in a crowd somewhere and his mom said something to him. He was talking about the wedding at Cana. All right. And uh, do you remember where uh, she tells him there, they've run out of wine. And he says, there's this obscure Hebrew idiom where he, uh, what he says exactly is what to me and to you. My time has not yet come. And depending on your translation, it might say something. What have I, woman, what have I to do with you? Uh, anyway, he says, you know, there's this time he was in a crowd and his mom asked him something and he yelled at her and he said, what I got to do with you? He says, can you imagine somebody speaking to their mom like that? He says, Jesus would never have done that, would he? I said, I have never heard that take on that story. That's not what happened, man. But we see this, I mean, here's his family and this is a culture that values family. And they say, hey, your mom and your brothers are here. You know who my mom and brothers are? They're the people who hear the word of God and do it. He wasn't dissing his family. He's simply saying the most important thing is your relationship with God, not your relationship with your family. He's not saying family is not important. We know that. He established the family, right? But our loyalty, if we're going to build our whole worldview around keeping the family together, what is that going to mean in heaven? Because there's a different order in heaven. As, As much as I love my wife, Scripture indicates pretty strongly that she's not going to be my wife in heaven. Does that shock you? But you know Jesus said that, right? Because they tried to trap him. That woman who had had, uh, uh, you know, she'd been married. and They came, there's a woman, she got married, and then her husband died, and she married another guy, and he died, and she married another guy five times. Whose wife is she going to be in heaven? Gotcha. And what they're trying to get him to, to admit was there's no such thing as the resurrection. These were the Sadducees. And he said, yeah, you're misunderstanding the things of God. Because in heaven, they're not married, nor given in marriage. There's no weddings. There's no marriage in heaven. Be more like the angels. So if I'm invest now, do I want to invest in my family's future? Do I want to pour into them so that they are in heaven with me? Absolutely. But it isn't just about elevating my family or my success, or building a bigger house, or enjoying all the blessings of God. I'm going to come back to that here in just a second. This is where we, as Word of Faith people in particular, need to be very, very careful. So let me be clear about this right off the bat. I believe, I am convinced that God, our Heavenly Father, delights in my prosperity and your prosperity. It's so important to realize that we are to know God as Father, and what father, who has any compassion, any brains, uh, any sensitivity at all, is going to resent or do anything other than celebrate when their children do well? I get excited. I want to be I, You should be excited when your children prosper. They're doing good, right? Same with God. But we don't want them to prosper. You know, I'm not going to celebrate. Well, he prospered as a member, a high-ranking member of organized crime. That's not something we want to celebrate, right? There's 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 a priority here, right? First be good, then be prosperous. All right? So he delights in my prosperity. He delights in yours. But prosperity isn't the end game, is it? He delights in my health. He delights in my success, but my success and my health are not the end game. If the only example being set by a believer is looking, is say, look how successful I am. Even look what God has done for me. And you're pointing to your cars and your houses, your bank account, your clothes, your toys. We are missing the point. If I try to win you to Christ by saying, look at all the stuff you'll get, I'm leading you wrong. Now, I have to temper that a little bit. I remember on my very first mission trip uh, with YWAM, there was a uh, a great message uh, by the leader of the trip who said, you know, when you're sharing the gospel with somebody and they ask you the question, "Why why should I become a Christian? What are they really asking? Somebody can answer this for me. What's in it for me? And he said, that's the wrong question. You don't turn to God because of what's in it for you. You turn to God because he's God. You come to the knowledge that he is truth. I want to challenge that a little bit. Because I think while at the core of that, the core of what he's saying is absolutely true. He's God. If we come to, to if, if God reveals to us through a, through a minister, through the Spirit, any way we come to the realization that Jesus is exactly who the Bible says he is, that God is who the Bible uh, defines God as, and then if we recognize that, we're really not in a position to negotiate. Okay, God, I believe you're God, and I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sin, but if I follow you, what am I going to get out of this? What's in it for me? No, if it's true, The only right thing to do is respond to it as truth. But God himself has jammed his word full of what's in it for us. Hasn't he? Taste and see that the Lord is good. All of these promises, all the, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. There are benefits, and God isn't hiding from us. And he's not going to say, I'd like to save you, but you're thinking about escaping hell. You're thinking about um, prosperity. You're thinking about healing. He wants us to think about those things, or he wouldn't have told us about those things. Okay? But, and you've heard me say this too. Let me say it again. I believe that there are certain ministers out there who are legitimate specialists, There's a a very well-known minister. There's no reason not to name him, but I won't anyway. But his message is very widely received, but it's a very kind of a, not, not a super deep message, but a super important one. And the message really is, God loves you and God's for you. And he has captured the imagination and the attention of tens of thousands, probably millions of people who had rejected God before. And now what's he get? Because he's been enormously successful, he gets tons of criticism because he doesn't talk enough about hell. He doesn't talk enough about social issues. He doesn't take a strong enough stand on certain questions. And there are legitimate concerns there. But his basic message is a true message. God loves you. God is for you. And I think I've always described him as a specialist. He has an, an anointing to reach people who have been hurt, by a bad representation of God. Perhaps they've been hurt by Christian family members. Perhaps they've been hurt by a church. And he, I believe, has been anointed by God to soften those hearts and bring them back into the full. There are other ministers who have a specialty anointing on for, to speak about healing. There are some who have a specialty anointing to speak about prosperity. Just because they don't always talk about everything doesn't mean they're heretics. Now a pastor has to talk about everything, whether it's a specialist or not. So there are some ministers I would listen to, but I wouldn't necessarily uh, look to them as a pastor because they're, they're too focused on one thing. But you see, our, our examples, coming back to what Paul has written here, our examples as believers are those who walk in a manner where their life is completely given over to Jesus Christ. We're talking about lordship here. Our hope is not God has been good. You see, I have plenty of money saved up, and I've got things to last me. My family is in good shape, and I'm well-respected by my community. Are those bad things? No, they're not. They're just not where our hope is. Paul couldn't say those things. He's in prison. What's our hope? He says it right here. Jesus is coming back. It's not just some nebulous hope, oh, in Jesus, we hope in Jesus. No, it's the resurrected Lord is returning someday, and when he comes back, he's going to fix everything, including this body that requires so much time and attention. What are we going to have? We're going to get a new one. Our body is going to look like Jesus' body. It's going to be perfect, untouched by sickness, age, and everything else. Let's just read that again really quick Beginning in verse 20 of chapter 3 Our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait For the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ Who will transform our lowly body That it may be conformed to his glorious body According to the working by which he is able Even to subdue all things to himself That's our hope We've got to move on Because I want to get far enough into this to tie it to what we've just to tie what we just read to what is possibly the most famous verse in Philippians but let's move quickly first uh, beginning in chapter 4 be, uh, verse 1 therefore my beloved and longed for brethren my joy and crown so stand fast in the lord beloved i implore euodia And I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, what is this about? He just goes from talking about these huge, deep life issues to addressing a squabble between two women in Philippi. Euodia and Syntyche, it doesn't tell us what the nature of this is, but clearly they had been butting heads about something. And he's saying, hey, you guys need to get along. Be of the same mind in the Lord and you, true companion. He's saying, now you, speaking to his true companion. By the way, that word, true companion, is the word uh, Greek word syzygous. And some think that might be a proper name. So he says, hey, Syzygus. Why don't you kind of moderate this discussion? Why don't you do what you can to get Syntyche and Euodia back in agreement because there are bigger issues about, than who's right about whatever they're arguing about. He's talking about their Christian witness. You see what it says there? First of all, he says, I urge you uh, to help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. He's saying... These are brothers and sisters. Whoever's right, whoever's wrong, they're brothers and sisters, and they are in the same book as you. Syzygous, maybe you're on one side. Maybe you're taking Euodia's side. Maybe you're taking Syntyche's side. But this is bigger than that. You are all in the book of life. That means you are going to be in heaven with each other for everybody. Settle this thing for the sake of the gospel you focus. focused. We've got all these big issues. We've got a gospel to preach, a gospel to live, and this is a big enough issue that Paul addresses it in this letter. As uh, Elastigirl famously said to Mr. Incredible, This is not about you. This is not about you. This is about Jesus. This is about the gospel. My wife knows the Incredibles almost as well as I know the Bible. (laughs) Keep that in mind while we read a couple more verses here. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. This is connected to what he just said. Settle this. Not just so you get along, but so that your gentleness is known by all. Look, they settled this because there's something bigger. They put their hands to the plow and joined and and, uh, agree. they're agreeing to pursue the bigger thing and lay this little thing aside. Why is this important? Because the Lord is at hand. We don't want to be embroiled in these little squabbles, keeping us from doing the real work, and all of a sudden Jesus shows up. What are you doing? I gave you important things to do. These are general truths. The next thing he says here, because this is also connected to what comes next, and what comes next is pretty famous. Let me read it, and then come back and make some comments. Uh, Verse six, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. These are general truths, With a specific application here. It's not one or the other. My favorite example of that is in James. Where he talks about if any of you lack wisdom. Let him ask of God who gives to all men liberally. Without uh, without reproach. But let him ask in faith. Right? There's an instruction in James. So when we go to God. Asking for wisdom. That we need to expect it. Because if we don't expect it. If we're not asking in faith. James turns around and says. Interestingly, he doesn't say, don't let that man think he's going to get wisdom. He says, let not that man suppose he will receive anything because he's double-minded. So the specific thing James is talking about is wisdom. The general principle is when you go to God for anything, ask in faith, expecting it. Now, where does the expectation come from? Faith begins where the will of God is known. So he's got, there's some things here he's talking about starts with a very specific thing, Eodia and Syntyche and Sisygus and, and whoever else, Clement. Guys, you need to be working together because we have got a gospel to live and a gospel to preach and a world to save. So let your gentleness be known to all. And don't uh, be anxious for anything by, uh, in all things. So what's he saying? This is a, if you're struggling, he has, he, he's given some specifics. Oh, man, I've got to rush through this because I've got to get to this verse. And he, say, he says, uh, I, want you to, I want you to settle this argument because I love you guys. But I don't just want to say, come on, you guys, get over it. I want you to understand that God himself will involve. He cares about this. He wants you guys to get along. So I'll tell you one thing you need to do. Instead of arguing it out in all things, not just this, but in all things, by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. Are you, as believers, as fellow believers in the same local body, are you forgetting a basic principle here? I know you think you're right, and I know you think it's important, but can you both set it aside long enough to pray about it? Have you even asked God to get involved in this situation? So, uh, let me move on here. Let me read quickly through the rest of this passage and I'm not blowing it off I will come back next week and unpack it because it's too it's too important to skip over but I have to make this connection while the first part of the sermon is somewhat fresh in your mind. Ah uh, where was I verse 8 finally brethren Whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did, not, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There it is. That's the verse. Probably the most famous verse in Philippians. One of the most famous verses in the New Testament. The favorite verse of every Christian athlete. Now, Is that a broad truth? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That on its own. Is that a truth that we can believe? Because I believe it is. But Paul is connecting it to something very specific. The specific uh, context here is that God has enabled him to endure all of this hardship. Up to and including prison. The, you've heard me uh, kind of go off on this before. There was a, uh, you know, the what's the um, uh, the graduation verse? It's on our programs too when we make it. The uh, I know the plans that I have for you, saith the Lord. Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. And there, there, it's kind of become all the rage lately for these armchair theologians to get on the internet and say, oh, everybody is misquoting and misapplying this verse. You need to understand that God was speaking this to a captive Israel who had sinned, and he's going to bring him back. I get it. But then you turn and ask him, so are you saying that God doesn't have good plans for me? No. Are God's plans for me good? Yeah. Yeah. Does God want me to have hope in a future? Yeah. Then shut up. This verse is for me. Now, Paul here, and they do the same thing with this verse. Oh, people quote, uh, I can do all things through Christ like they can do this, like like God uh, can strengthen them to be a success and be a winner and everything. Uh, Are you saying that God doesn't want me to succeed? No. Does God want me to win? Is God for me? Yes. Then shut up. This verse is for me too. But here's where we've got to watch it. The narrow truth is Paul saying, prison isn't even bothering me. He's thanking him for an offering, and we're going to come back and look at that next week. I'm so thankful that you've you've demonstrated your care for me. I knew you cared before. Glad you finally had the opportunity. I appreciate the gift, but I'm not saying that because I want another one. I'm not saying it because I need it. I've learned to be content in every situation. I've been hungry for a long time. I've been full for a long time. And the fact is, my satisfaction is in Jesus Christ, and it's through him that I can do everything. The broad truth is not, so that's the narrow truth, the broad truth is not, because of Jesus, I can do anything I want to. Super important distinction. Had this kid in Farmer City, part of our youth group, and he came over to my house one night to talk. His heart was heavy. Uh... He loved, loved, loved to play football, and he was a little guy with, I mean, I think he was doing the best he could with his physique and with his talent, but in the natural, this kid was not going to be a football player. That was his dream. He didn't just want to play high school football. He wanted to be a pro player, and he just wanted me to pray with him and agree with him And I also, my heart was heavy for him because I also knew that part of what was driving his train was a deep dissatisfaction in his family life. He wanted an escape. But Philippians isn't saying, if you want to be a football player, if you want to be a professional football player, then guess what? You can do it. Because you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. That is not what that verse is saying, is it? What is it saying? It's saying you can't do anything you want, but you can do everything he wants you to do. We were just in Ephesians not long ago. Let me share with you one verse from Ephesians as I wrap this up in chapter 2, 2.10 says, uh, For we are his workmanship, Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This goes back to one of the first sermons I preached when I came back here five or so years ago. God has planned a lifetime of good works for you. You guys know I'm not a Calvinist. I don't believe that everything we experience and everything we do is preordained. I do believe that once we commit our lives to Christ, he doesn't say, all right, go out there and do something. He gives us something specific. If we seek guidance, he gives it to us. He has given us these good works to do. Now, and as we walk along this path, we might come across an opportunity that God has put right there and we think, that's too big. I haven't got it in me. And God says, oh yeah, you do. I put you on this path. I brought you to this opportunity, and you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you because I've called you to do it. What can I do through Christ who strengthens me? All things He has called me, all things He has led me to. Psalm 37 4. And just read it off up there. You guys know it. You guys can probably quote it, right? Delight yourself in the Lord, and He shall give you the desires of your heart. What does it mean? Does it mean if you go to church and read your Bible, he gives you everything you want? No, it means you delight yourself in him. You are submitting your desires to him, and he will give you the correct desires. And once God plants that desire in you, then you can pursue it passionately. You can pursue it in faith and trust that God has given you everything to see the fulfillment of that desire. We're talking about these desires. Let me ask you this. What's God's desire? What's the heartbeat of God? The heartbeat of God is evangelism and missions. The heartbeat of God is the preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ. God's desire is for you to have a saving knowledge of him through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And God's desire is for you to be involved in bringing that same saving knowledge to those who haven't experienced it yet. That's God's desire. What am I saying? God loves you, so he wants to save you. And once he saves you, he wants to use you. He doesn't save you just so you can have a good life here and a good life there. Paul called them, called the Philippians, his what? His joy and his treasure? Is that right? Crown. What's that mean? His crown. This is what Paul is looking forward to in heaven. The people that are there because of his ministry. That's the only thing that's going to mean it. You are not going to look back and say, ah, in heaven. And and the first thing you're going to want to talk about is, let me tell you about the house God blessed me with. Let me tell you how financially blessed I was. That's for here. It ain't going to mean anything in heaven. I said something about that not long ago. Maybe it was Wednesday. You are not going to be rewarded because of the degree to which you experience God's blessings here, you're going to be rewarded to the degree which you obey him. How many people are you going to take with you? God wants you saved, and he wants to use you to save others. You can't do it without the Holy Spirit. No matter what somebody believes about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, any time God uses them to bring somebody else to Christ, you better believe it's the Holy Spirit doing it. But Jesus himself said to his disciples who were already believers, already born again, he said, don't go out and do that work that I've called you to do until you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You wait here in Jerusalem until you receive that power. Then you'll be my witnesses here, there, and everywhere. So here's my, here's my question for you. Do you want to get saved? Do you need to be saved? Come up here. As soon as we start singing, come up here and let me pray with you for salvation. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.